Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bear up, bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's a joy to be here with you all and to be able to um, bring this message to you. And uh, it's a special message that I know the Lord has been working in my heart um, many times over. Uh, not just for this occasion, but um, even occasions in the past. Um, back in uh, 1984, excuse me, 1994, uh, the Lord saved me. Uh, he uh, miraculously and powerfully he rescued me from my sin, death, and uh, delivered me from many addictions and sin and a life of rebellion. And um, and I couldn't, when he did save me, I couldn't believe that he had done that. I I was in awe of it. I couldn't, it was unimaginable that God would rescue somebody like me, somebody who lived the life I lived and, and done horrible things. And it had such a great impact in my life that I, I was uh, just changed and transformed. I, I considered, I look back now and I look and I said, boy, you know, the Lord just really transformed my heart. He, major changes, my uh, speech changed, my values changed. Uh, he put me in a church. He, I, I loved going to church where I loved football in the past. And, you know, only good thing on Sundays was football. But now I completely left football behind and, and started going to church. And uh, the Lord and the Holy Spirit by his power did uh, just a transformative work in my, in my life. And, um, and as he did it, I, there was many things about it that I love to do. Suddenly, I love to pray. I love spending time with the Lord in prayer. I loved uh, spending just hours praying to him at night and, and I'd spending time in his word and, and God made his word come alive to me. It was amazing. I, I had no theological training before and even before I was saved, I'd look at God's word and I didn't understand a thing. I had a King James Bible but, and it's hard to understand, but even, even then I had no understanding. I was like, knew, understood very little, but when as he saved me, he opened my eyes and I began to see marvelous things. And I delighted in his word. I delighted every time God would give me glimpses of Christ in his glory and, and, and just even show me more and more of what he did for me on the cross. I love telling people about Jesus too. From the very start, from the day he saved me, I, I would spend time, you know, commuting to work back and forth to San Leandro, but I'd be riding the bus and then BART, spending time at bus stops and on the BART train. And, and if you were sitting next to me on BART and you didn't know me, I would introduce myself and, and I would 
just start sharing. Now, you had no choice in it. I would just share about what Jesus, I'd say, you know what? Uh, I, I just need to tell you what Jesus did for me. And, and this was even probably right around the same time I started in each, attending church. So I had no one telling me to do this. It was just what Christ had done in my life and, and how he, the, just the truth was just burning inside of me and it had to come out. I had great love and affection for the Lord, and this lasted many years. Um, the Lord, in, in his uh, sovereign knowledge, put me in a, in a fundamental Baptist church, a very independent fundamental Baptist church, and where uh, there was no uh, band or anything. There was a piano, and we had hymn books and psalters, and, and uh, the men wore suits and ties, and the women always wore dresses, even at home always in dresses, and, and uh, this was the only Christianity I really knew. I didn't know any different, but the Lord used that to actually change me, because the culture I was in, and the music, and the drugs, and the party scene, and everything was so drastically different from where the Lord put me, but he used that church in a, in a great way in my life to disciple me, to help me to grow in my knowledge and understanding of the gospel and who Jesus Christ was and what actually happened to me, because I really didn't even think I could be saved, but he did save me. But over time at that church, something happened, something horrible, and my love for the Lord, that fire that I had at first in our relationship, began to grow cold. The embers of it just started dying, and I sensed it. I didn't fully understand what was happening, but I sensed it. I sensed what was that it was. Suddenly, the, the desire to tell people about Christ changed. I didn't like doing it so much anymore. Um, and, and when I did, if I missed one opportunity to be at the church, because we would go out on Tuesdays and Saturdays, I was like, I'd feel guilty and it was little things, just little things in sermons being preached, little things subtly inserted, where before I, I would do it just because I loved God, because it was incredible. But my gaze slowly shifted from the incredible work that Christ did for me and the forgiveness I received to, if you're not doing this, you're not pleasing to God. If you're, not, if you're late for church, you're not pleasing to God. If you're not, you know, do, listening, if you're listening to the wrong kind of music, you're not pleasing to God. It became about performance and the things that I do. So I had to up my game. I had to bring up my performance level to, to, to do it. And I had to work harder. And it became, the more harder I worked to try to do it, the less and less joy I had. And it killed the joy. And this went on for a few years. And it wasn't until the end of my time at that church when I began teaching through the book of Ephesians, that the Lord reawakened my, my joy in the gospel, reawakened to my spirit, to life, and the, the joy that I had at the beginning. And it was very interesting because I had just very little knowledge of Greek, but when I started reading through Ephesians chapter 1 and going through a study of it, I began to see like incredible things that all of the things that, that all of the things that God did for us, there's not one mention of one thing that we do. 
that God did this while I was a sinner, that his love for me had nothing to do with my performance at all. His desire to save me and make me his child and his pleasure and his delight in me has nothing to do with me and my righteousness and my performance. And so what happened there? How did I get to this place where I, where I lost sight of that? And so when I looked and looking at this passage, our passage today, here we have the church at Ephesus. Here we have this, this wonderful, beautiful church, in, in, which is now Turkey, a church that had, had Timothy as its pastor from the epistle of Paul to Timothy. Paul met with the elders of, of the church at Ephesus, warning them that after he would depart, that, that people would come in with and false teachings. They'd come in like wolves to scatter the sheep. And even people from among them would come. Paul warned them. How could, how could this happen to them? And, I, and, and John was there. This was John's home church, uh, like historically. That's what they say. This was one of his home, like his home territory, the church in Ephesus. And Mary, the mother of Christ, was there. So how could this church, this thriving church, end up into this state where Christ says they need to remember and repent? How could they get to this place? And the truth is, Christ warns them and he says, you've lost your first love. They had a lot going for them, but they lost it. They lost their first love. And that's what we're going to look at today. And when we do this, we're going to be looking at four points. And one of them is, the first one is the complete revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then second, we'll see the commendation from the Lord. And then we'll have to seriously consider the command to remember and repent. And lastly, the conquering promise of our first love. So before we begin and jump into this, let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much for your word. Father, I pray that as we <clears throat> go through this message today, that, uh, Father, that you would open our eyes, help us to examine, uh, Father, by your spirit, not by guilt, not by um, any pressure, but Father, that, that we would, out of love for you, hear what your spirit says to the churches and to us. Father, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are yielding and tender and submissive to you, that we would uh, hold fast to you in the gospel. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So our first point here is that we're going to look at today is the complete revealing of Christ. And this is incredible because this message comes from Jesus Christ himself. Now he uses John and he brings John. John is exiled on the Isle of Patmos when he brings this message uh, to him. Um, but he's, John is given instruction in the vision in chapter one. He's given instruction to dictate and be like a secretary to bring these messages to the churches that are scattered throughout Asia Minor. And these are the churches that are listed um, later on in all the letters too, but they're listed in, in chapter one. But they were, um, this, these churches and this region were enduring uh, just great persecution. And, uh, and in this time, God decides to reveal Jesus Christ in his fullness. And that's really what the, the, the book Revelation is about. It's the revealing of who Jesus Christ is and his will for the rest of eternity of what's coming. <clears throat> so 
So we see that, and John writes of this in, in Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, um, that it's not just him, but the message coming from the spirits of God and, the, and Jesus Christ. Uh, 4 reads, <clears throat> John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. So it's, Jesus, so it's Jesus Christ, he testifying that it's him. He's the faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead, referencing his, his resurrection. And then in verse eight, uh, God gives testimony of the identity of Jesus Christ as the coming one and the, the almighty. It reads, I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty. Then in verse 12, we see the Lord Jesus Christ himself beautifully as well as terrifyingly revealed. This isn't the same Jesus, the, the soft Jesus that we see in pictures. This isn't the uh, defeated Jesus hanging on the cross. This is a triumphant and majestic Jesus in all of his glory that he gives to, to John here in this vision. And we see it, it reads <clears throat> in verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven <clears throat> golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. <clears throat> and, on the hairs, and the hairs of his head were, like, were white, like white wool, like snow. Seeing his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Can you imagine that? Looking into the full strength of the sun, beholding that. What would you do? I mean, what effect does that have on a person? It's blinding. It's piercing. We can't, we can't tolerate it. But here it was right before John, the full blast of Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And it's terrifying. How do I know that? Well, John's response, and you know, John was the beloved disciple. He was the one close to Christ. There's a couple of times in, in the gospel of John where John is described as leaning on Jesus' chest, reclined as they're taking the, the Lord's table as they were, even at, at, at a separate time when they were eating with Christ after his resurrection, he's inclined, reclined back, on Jesus. He was intimate with Christ. He loved him. He knew him. He was there at the crucifixion. He, he witnessed his resurrection. He re witnessed the ascension of Christ into heaven. And yet, John's response at seeing Christ revealed in his holy and beautiful and wonderful and terrifying glory, we see this in chapter 1, verse 17 through 20. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he, he laid his hand on me compassionately, right? It's, it's for God, Jesus to lay his hand down on him, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, <clears throat> to, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we see Christ revealing himself to John and to the churches that the messages were going to 
in its full glory, that they would have no mistake of who this was, who this messages were coming from. And I believe it was for that they would understand the seriousness of these messages in, in God and his, his love for these churches and, and the seriousness that these messages would, would deliver to them. And that brings us to our second point, the commendation from our Lord. <clears throat> Verses two and three, and then verse six. Uh, verse two and three read, this is the message of Christ. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear those that are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. The church in Ephesus was doing well in the Lord's sight. They had endured much tribulation. They were enduring a lot of oppression. Churches in that whole region were experiencing persecution. I mean, if you were uh, somebody who was turning away from idols and following Christ, the communities hated you. We see this all throughout the books of, a book of Acts where Paul goes and he's chased out of these, these, these cities, fleeing for his life in some of them. Um, we know that other believers were being stoned. To be baptized back then, you would receive persecution. And so this church in the middle of this area, where as the gospel was spreading, and it was spreading, faced a lot of intense persecution. But in the middle of it all, they toiled. They worked hard. And that's the word here that we see and it says that I know your works and your toil. That toil is, is, is laborious and weary work. It's tiring. But they actually, this word has a little bit, of, a little different than just regular work. It's actually as well with an intentional trouble that comes along with it. Like somebody was actually trying to make it even more difficult for you to continue on and follow Christ. And this is what they were dealing with. And they were not growing weary. Um, the Lord commends them for that, that they, even though they ex were experiencing this tribulation and trouble, they were not growing weary. And we know that this was spread throughout this whole region. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, Peter tells, is encouraging the, church, the churches in that region. And he tells them, he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. <clears throat> Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, Peter saw this and he saw, it was encouraging these churches that they themselves, even though they were experiencing this tribulation, they had not lost sight of Jesus Christ. They had not lost their hold on the, and their love for Jesus Christ, that they were enduring it. And these, these trials and testings of their faith were actually something that was good. And Jesus commends the church at Ephesus for this, that they were doing good work, that they were enduring well. <clears throat> and so this church was faithful in that. And they were upholding doctrinal vigilance. They were testing apostles. They, they had, were very grounded and rich in theology and doctrine. 
They had a lot going for it. They had some of the finest teachers visit them and, and, and were with them. <clears throat> but for all that they had going for it, all the testing of apostles and, and keeping church purity and doctrinal purity, they were still in grave danger. The next con- commendation they have was in verse six. It says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It's odd to hear that word hate as being something commended, commendable, that you hate something. Um, and this was the work of a group of people called the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans, some people believe that it was um, a, a, a group of uh, distinct Christians that were started by a deacon uh, called Nicholas, one of the early deacons in the church history. Um, but yet scholars uh, believe more that this group got its name um, and were called the victory people or Nicoleo, which is uh, two words put together, victory and people or overcomer people that these people um, had. And that's what they were called. We know that this group though, <clears throat> they walked in a way that was very different uh, than the gospel calls us to walk. They didn't walk in the light of the gospel, but they walked what they called liberty in the gospel. But this liberty was actually idolatry. They, they took celebrated eating meat offered unto idols, which Paul talks about in Corinthians. He talks about eating meat on, offered unto idols. But their partaking of this meat offered unto idols involved more of the ceremonial aspects of it. Actually taking part in these, these what would be considered very immoral sacrifices and offerings to other gods. They mingled the worship of other gods in the Christianity. They were also very um, allowing and even telling people that it was a fornication was okay. And we're not just talking, so fornication in, 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 the, in the New Testament is used like the word pornia, and, it, and it's where we get the word like pornography from, but it's all forms of idolatry. That idolatry was actually okay. And, but this was expressed in very sexually immoral practices being allowed and being taught that it was actually okay, that you had liberty to do that, that because of God's grace that this was allowed and they, they walked in them. And the Ephesian church resisted these teachings from even coming into their church. They resisted partaking in it. They taught contrary to it. And so they were commended for it because they actually hated their teachings. I'm sure they loved those people and wanted those people to repent and turn and turn back to God, but they did not. They hated the practice and the work of the Nicolaitans. And, and God, Jesus hates it too. It completely distorted the gospel. This license that people believe that, that you have because of God's grace to walk in sin. Paul says that, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, God forbid, right? And so this, is, this was a clear teaching in the church that we were not to do that. We're reminded again and again to flee idolatry, to flee sexual immorality, to run, resist it, push back on it in our lives. But yet these teachers thought that it was, it was actually okay. And Christ said he hated it. And the Ephesians hate it too, so they were commended for it. Now a church down the street 
one of the sister churches here in Asia Minor, I say down the street, it's actually probably hundreds of kilometers, but the church uh, at Pergamos, uh, they actually allowed for the Nicolaitans to be in their congregation. There was no discipline. There was no, they, they allowed them to be there and to be influential. And the Lord to, turns to them in his, his letter to the church in, a little bit later in this chapter and tells them to repent of that. Christ takes it very seriously. But these, this church here was commended for it. So they were commended for it. They're commended for these things, for, for, for hating what the Lord hates and for, for their doctrine and for their testing of apostles. And I'm sure the church, you know, they, they, they had much of the same things that we have in our church, a love for the doctrine, a love for these things. But something, again, they were, was still missing and they were in very serious danger of lo- losing their light as a church of Christ. And that brings me to our third point, the command to remember and repent. <clears throat> Christ says in verse four, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore where you have fallen and repent and do the works that you did at first. See the church here, they had lost, abandoned the love they had at first. And this is what the God had against them. This is what Christ had against them. What was that love at first? What is that first love? You know, and as we look, we can look and we can wonder, we can say, Ooh, what, what is it? Were they playing the wrong worship music? Or did they have the wrong color carpet? That's none of those superficial things. It's actually deep and it's rooted into the first parts of their relationship with God itself. The word love here is the word agape. It's the same love that we're we're told in Ephesians chapter five, that God loved the church with, that he gave himself for, that Christ loves the church and he gave himself for it. This is the same love. And it's the same love that husbands are next called to love their wives that way. They're told to love our wives. It's that same love. It's not an erotic love. It's not a brotherly love. It's a love. And it's, a, it's, a, it's the, the quality of affection and intimacy that only comes with knowing God. And it's also the same love that we are commanded and that Jesus in talking to the lawyers actually says that it's the, it's the first love, the greatest commandment. In Matthew 22 verses 35 through 40, it reads, and one of them, a lawyer asked him, Jesus, a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love the Lord, excuse me, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. So this love, you can say, Yes, we're supposed to love God. It's like the first commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before me. You're to love him. We're We're to praise him. We're to adore him. He is to be the center with all of our mind, with all of our strength, with every ounce of power that we have, we're called to love God. That's the commandment. And we all know that sin hinders that. Sin can turn us and turn us away from that in so many different ways. But the Lord is calling them back to remember that first love. And what was that like? 
What was that like for you? You know, I kind of shared a little bit of what it was like for me, just a joy and an eagerness to tell everyone about this wondrous love that God had for me and my love for my Savior. And I know, like I said, that, that, that faded and grew cold. But what does it look like? What does this love look like? And I really think that we'll see it in Luke chapter 7, verses 44 through 50. Jesus has actually just, he had been working and preaching and, and he'd gone in to have dinner with one of the Pharisees named Simon. And as Jesus went into the house, a, a woman that Jesus had an interaction with previously had followed him. In. And she was a sinner. She was like maybe even perhaps an immoral woman. And she had followed Christ into this Pharisee's house where she was not even invited, right? She just came, she says, pushing along, getting into the house where Jesus was. <clears throat> and as she's seating there and she's, she's worshiping Christ in various forms, the men begin to, the, the Pharisees are sitting around here and they begin to think in their heads, does he even know who this woman is? If he did, he would not have anything to do with her. And Jesus perceived their thoughts and, and gave them a, a parable on forgiveness. But in Matthew 35 through 40, the lawyer, one of them, excuse me, the Pharisees, uh, this is in Luke chapter 7, sorry, uh, 44 through 50, then turning toward the woman, Jesus says, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came, she came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. See, her love was big. It was extravagant, right? I mean, it was, it was just an outpouring. She did not care what people thought. She did not care what people thought of her falling down at 30 feet and crying and washing and wiping them with her tears and her hair. She did not care even the expense that it would cost to, to, to pour out this ointment possibly her life savings, just to anoint and perfume the feet of Jesus Christ. She poured out everything and she just did not care what people thought because she loved him so much. And that love came out of a place from viewing the gospel, viewing how much she had been forgiven. She had this clear understanding of who he was, what he had done, and she loved him for it, of what he gave her. And nothing was too extravagant. <clears throat> and I get the feeling that a lot of ways, I don't know if you and your marriages, husband and wives, what your marriage was like in the beginning, you know, when you first met your wife. Maybe you wrote poetry. Maybe you made some mixtapes or burned some mixed CDs with just songs. These songs remind me about you, baby. This... You know, maybe you, you spend hours on the phone long into the night just, just hearing your voice, you know, just spending that time together. Or maybe you traveled just through a blizzard just to meet 
meet her in New Mexico like I did. <laughs> you know, no distance was too far. No time spent was too great. You know, I'm not good at writing, but boy, I would try to write poetry and, and, and let her know the love I had. And I know that things grow cold, you know, in marriage. I mean, there's kids, laundry, dishes, work. You know, there's my hobbies. There's, you know, my Twitter feed, social media. I mean, so many calls of our attention away from our spouse. You know, and I wonder if it was like that for the church. Not in a romantic way, but just in an adoring love for Christ. You know, that, that, and I feel bad because when as I was preparing this, I was so convicted about how I love my wife because it definitely wasn't how Christ loved his church. And I, I was just like, oh, I need to work. I need to work on that. Not out of guilt, because, but because I love her. And it's the same even greater for Christ. But if all those things can distract me and cause me not to love my wife the way I should, then definitely those things can rob us of our love and joy for Christ. Right? We can even be here in church doing good things, doing constantly have a schedule full of things in the church going, right? And yet we can lose sight of the reason and the person we're doing this for. We can lose sight of what we had at the beginning and why he's worth it, why he's worth expending all of this energy, expending all of my power, expending all of our resources for. Because he's worth it because he forgave us, because he saved me. I was dead and he brought me back to life. I, was, I deserved wrath and he gave me paradise with him. I don't deserve any of that. And he's the only one that can truly satisfy. None of these other things can ever satisfy. He is the only one. But we abandon it. That's what he says. The church has abandoned it, their first love. And abandon is the word. It's, it really truly is abandoned. I don't know if you've, you know, when the disciples were left to follow Christ, their boats, they abandoned their nets and their boats. Their boats were empty. They had gone far away the other direction. The church is the same picture. They had, they had abandoned this love they had in the beginning for Christ. This church at Ephesus, like I said, they had... They had heavy hitters there. They had strong men, these apostles and, and leaders of the early church. And somehow this happened. And, and not just that. I believe that there was something else missing because when you lose that love for Christ and you lose your sight of the gospel, you know what happens when somebody offends you in a small way? Suddenly that offense is great. Forgiveness is hard to come by. Or when somebody we, in our church knows you, we know that they're hurting or, and they need compassion and kindness and mercy. Suddenly it's, I'm just too tired today to do it, you know? Because if we're doing it in our own power, we're not, we're not remembering what Christ did because that, by remembering that, remembering how we were forgiven, it allows me to say, look, what you did is nothing. What I did to God is horrible, and he forgave me. I'm just so easily going to show grace to you and forgive you and love you. Even if, you know, even if it's only one way, that's what I'm going to do because that's how God is toward me. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. 
So the gospel transforms that. It transforms how we interact with each other. And I believe the church here at Ephesus had lost that too. Because like I said, you lose one, you lose the other. And I'm so thankful here, like at Wellspring, I'm so thankful for Pastor Sam and Fuji and Thomas and the elders. And um, because over the years in my struggles, they have not pointed me to other solutions apart from the gospel. They've pointed me to the gospel. Pastor Sam faithfully has, in our friendship over the years, has constantly pointed me that. And that's why we try to keep it preeminent here. But I tell you, Wellspring Church, we, this is not a guarantee that we would never lose this. And that's why these reminders are so important in our lives periodically as believers to be reminded that we have to always be reminded to turn and keep our first love our first love. Paul, when he, when he taught this to the church at Ephesus, he taught, he opened with the gospel. He opened in Ephesians chapter one with just the gospel, the beautiful gospel, and that this gospel would be the, the engine in the wheels that actually propel the, the church and the believers in the church to live out what he had left, which was church unity, which was forgiveness, which was bearing with one another, submitting to one another, loving your wives, lo submitting to your husbands, loving your children, being a good employer, do doing spiritual warfare, evangelizing the world. The gospel itself as we see it is, needs to be preeminent. Christ needs to be preeminent because that is what does it. Ephesians chapter one, it reads, I'm not gonna read it, but Paul unpacks for them how God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing that he chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us and adopted us as sons, blessed us in the beloved, redeemed us through his blood, forgave us all our sin, lavished us in grace and mercy, granting us wisdom and insight and revealing Christ fully to us, granting us eternal inheritance and sealing us with the promise of his spirit. Later on, even in that Ephesians chapter one, it talks about that God even in his power toward us and saving us, he displayed the same mighty working of his power when he raised Christ from the dead. And this is an, if anything can make God sweat. This is it. If you look at the words here, the working of his great might, the working of his power, God, and when he exalted and lifted Christ and exalted him above every name that is named and at the highest pinnacle in heaven to be received all worship and all glory and all power and all adoration, God did, broke a sweat doing that for us. And even says in chapter two in Ephesians that he seated us with him that we might behold the riches of his grace and mercy into the ages to come. God doesn't want us to lose sight of this precious fact. But this is exactly what had happened to the church at Ephesus. In spite of everything they had going for them, this is what happened. And I pray it doesn't happen here. But God, who's rich in mercy, tells them to repent. He calls all of us to repent. And he leaves room for repentance. What a loving God. He just says, come back to me, turn back to me. He loves us, he's waiting for us, and he has a promise for us. And that brings us to our last point. 
the conquering promise of our first love. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He concludes this message to the church with this invitation to hear. An invitation of the church to hear, but like I said, it's an invitation for us to, to consider as well. And he says that to the one that conquers, he would grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in paradise with him. I pray that we do. I pray for that for everyone here. I wish, I pray that you'll come to Jesus if you don't know him already, that to be in paradise with him. We see just glimpses of this paradise and in overcoming um, in the book of Revelation. We see it elsewhere too. And, um, but we see it that Christ has indeed overcome. And you may feel like, okay, this is on me. I have to overcome. I have to, I'm the one that has to do this. No, Christ has overcome. Revelation 5, 5 says, And the one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. See, John was weeping because no one else was found worthy. No one else had overcome. But Jesus had overcome. Jesus had conquered. Sin, death, and the grave for us. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 7 reads, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory is in Christ. Overcoming is in Christ. Now the word, it's interesting because that, that thing about the Nicolaitans, the victory people, the overcoming people, it's that same word here. And it's kind of, the Lord kind of uses it to, to show that those, those aren't the real victory people. You are the real victory people. You who have placed your hope and faith in Christ. We know this from John as well. In 1 John 5, 1 through 5, it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. It's simple. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on the son. Keep your adoration planted and anchored and rooted in him. Pray, being his word, praying, God, show me more of you. Show me more of your glory. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, hits this on the head, especially for those who are enduring so much tribulation. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or a sword? 
God, as is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. His promise is to grant us incredibly access to the beginning. What we had with him at the beginning before the fall of man in the garden, a place with him eternally in his kingdom, united and joined with him forever, eating from the tree of life itself in the presence of our glorious and marvelous and altogether beautiful and wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. It's our first love in our paradise. So my prayer for us is that if you have ears to hear, examine yourself. My prayer for Wellspring Church is that we would hold on and cling to and that make the gospel preeminent in everything that we do. And I hope we do. I know gospel wells coming up and I pray that none of us would ever be in a place where we say, oh, I think I'm, I think I got there. I think I got it already. And, you know, but that we would humble ourselves and say, no, I, I need to be refreshed in this way. I need, I need more of that in my life. <clears throat> and I pray that if you haven't turned to Christ, if you haven't called on him to save you, that you would today, that you would turn and cry out in repentance and ask Christ to save you. And he will. He loves you so, so much. He gave, he died on the cross for you that you would join him. So I pray that you would turn to him and cry out. He's merciful and he's gracious and he's loving and he's forgiving to all of us. His steadfast love, it's deeper and wider than we could ever imagine and it's for you. So please, as a believer, repent, turn to him, remember how it was in the beginning, go back to that. And as an unbeliever, repent and cry out And he promises to deliver you, promises a place with you in paradise forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Father, for the grace and riches of your mercy in Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to never lose sight, to never turn away, to never abandon our first love. Father, keep us reminded by your spirit. Keep us uh, on a short Uh, tether, Father, that we would never walk or, or stray far from you at all. Father, I pray that you bind our wandering hearts to thee. And so, Father, I pray that your word and your spirit would convict where it needs convicting. Transform, Father, us where we need transformation and make us completely yours. And I pray and ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.